Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Welcome back to our series of discussions of the history of Zionism and the history of Israel. We've talked a little bit about what was going on in Europe at the beginning of Zionism and how difficult Europe was for the Jews in a whole variety of ways, but we really haven't talked about what was actually going on in the Middle East, what was happening in Palestine, who lived there, who ruled Palestine, what was, what was really happening. Uh, Palestine at that point was ruled by the Turks. It was called the Ottoman Empire, and the Turks had captured Palestine from the Christian Crusaders in 1516, which means that by the beginning of the 1900s, they've basically ruled it for 400 years. But even though they've ruled it for 400 years, they had really done very, very little with it, partly understandably. Don't forget that travel was very different then, communication was very different then, and Palestine was very, very far from Constantinople, and it hadn't really been developed. It was kind of a backwater of the Turkish Empire with a small population, a very low literacy rate, highly agricultural, very poor. There were a few very small number of Jews who were deeply pious and very devout, but very, very small who lived there. It was overwhelmingly Arabs. Most of those were Muslims. Uh, some were Christians. Uh, but again, a very, relatively small number of people, very poor, very detached from Constantinople and so forth. The, world war, the First World War is what begins to mark the end of the Ottoman Empire, which had really been declining for some time anyway. And by 1916 or so, it's pretty clear that even though the First World War is not over yet, it's pretty clear that the Turks are going to lose the war, along with Germany, of course, and that they are going to lose large parts of their empire, including Palestine as well. So in 1916, actually, the British and the French get together in what's called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which I mention now only because it's the beginning of a very important precedent. The British and the French get together before they've actually won the war, before they actually control Palestine, and they decide how to divide up the Middle East. And they don't consult with the Jews who are starting to go there, and they don't discuss it or consult with the Muslims who've been living there for a very long time. This is gonna become an overwhelmingly repeating pattern, everybody talking about dividing up the Middle East without actually consulting with the people uh, who actually live there. But in the meantime, we'll see this a little bit later, Jews have been slowly in a kind of dribs and drabs beginning to move to Palestine and then in greater numbers into the 1910s and 1915 and so on and so forth. And where are they living? They are living in lands that they buy. All of the lands that the Jews will live on in this whole period of time will be lands that they buy. Uh, they will buy the land with money that's raised from wealthy Jewish philanthropists, Lord Rothschild and many others across Europe and further beyond. And they will also buy the land with money that's been raised by the Jewish National Fund. Many of us have heard about the Jewish National Fund, and we think it's about planting trees in Israel, which it actually does do today, and much more. Uh, but the Jewish National Fund was created to be the fund that would actually collect the money that would enable Jews to buy these lands. 
Most of the people who sold the lands to the Jews weren't living anywhere near Palestine. They were very rich, wealthy landowners who lived in Syria, might have lived even further away, who were more than happy to sell what to them was basically worthless land to Jews who were willing to pay decent money for it. And the Jews begin to move into Palestine in greater and greater numbers. In 1917, it's already even more clear that the Ottomans are going to lose the war and that the British are going to take over Palestine, even though that wasn't quite what was agreed in the Sykes-Picot Agreement. The Sykes-Picot Agreement didn't stick and the British are going to want Palestine. Um, what, is, what is Palestine at that point? The British are going to get what's called the, the mandate, the mandate over Palestine, and it's going to include Israel, what's commonly called today the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and all of Jordan. All of what's now the state of Jordan, plus Israel, plus the West Bank, plus Gaza, is the area that the British are going to get control of when the war is over in 1917. I just want to make it clear, if you haven't looked at a map recently, what's the relative size of Israel and Jordan? And we'll talk a little bit later about why that's important. Israel today is about 8,500 square miles. And Jordan today is about 35,000 square miles meaning that Jordan is a little bit more than four times the size of Israel, and it therefore makes up about four-fifths of the area called the British Mandate, and we'll come back later to why that matters. In 1917, an extraordinary thing happens to the Zionists, not in Palestine, not in the Turkish Empire, but actually in London. There is a Jewish person named Chaim Weizmann, who was very involved in the Zionist movement, but was also a chemist and a leading scientist of the day, who invented acetone. Uh, acetone will become very important in pharmaceuticals later on, but it plays an extremely important role in the war effort of the Allies in the First World War. And it's used in explosives and guns and so on and so forth. So the myth has it that turns the, towards the end of 1917, uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, is going to turn to Chaim Weizmann as a thanks for all that he had done for the British war effort and say to him, given all that you've done, what is it that I can do for you? And the myth is, of course, that um, Weizmann said, there's only one thing that I want. I want a national home for my people. Uh, the reality is that it was not anywhere near as simple as that. There was a tremendous amount of negotiation between various numbers of British political parties and the British and the French and even some Americans got involved. But all of that negotiation eventually did lead to what's called the Balfour Declaration. And the Balfour Declaration is issued in November of 1917. And here's the entire declaration in two sentences, basically. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Now we're in 1917. We're exactly 20 years after the first Zionist Congress in Basel in 1897. 20 years in the world of politics is actually nothing. And in 20 years, Zionism has gone from being 207 delegates in Basel in a conference hall to being the official policy of the most powerful empire on earth. It's an unbelievable bit of progress for, for Zionism. And Jews, of course, are delighted all across the world. Britain issues the Balfour Declaration, as I said, in November 1917. Uh, and six weeks later, it's going to complete the conquest of Palestine from the Ottomans. It's kind of interesting that they issued the Balfour Declaration before they even had Palestine, but they really did know uh, that they were going to get it. 
So now Palestine and the Jewish home in Palestine is not just an idea of some Zionists, it's the policy of the British Empire, which is going to become increasingly important for us uh, later on. I want to mention only one thing about what happens a little bit after the Balfour Declaration. Uh, on July 24th, 1918, which is less than a year after November 1917, uh, thousands of people gather in Jerusalem for an interesting event. It's the cornerstone laying of the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. Uh, Israel isn't going to exist for 30 years yet. We're in 1918. Israel's not going to be born till 1948. But the Jews in Palestine are building universities and research institutes long before they even have a state. Long before they can even be certain that they're ever going to get a state, they are building the infrastructure of a state, and they're building the infrastructure of a Western, intellectually advanced state. So again, on July 24th, 1918, these thousands of people gather together to begin to create Hebrew University, and in doing so, really, I think, set the tone for what will become a Jewish state in 1948. But between 1918 and 1948, a tremendous amount has to happen in Palestine for there to become a Jewish state. And that's what we're going to begin to look at next. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.